Are you looking for something different to entertain your kids? Check out a new podcast for children. Mysteries About True Histories, affectionately known as M-A-T-H, is a weekly show full of time travel puzzles, hidden equations, history, and lots of laughs. Math is geared towards kids six and up, but can be enjoyed by the entire family. I love how the episodes are under 20 minutes, which was perfect for our drive to school. And my four-year-old really loved the episode, The Pirate Queen. Every episode follows two best friends, Max and Molly, who work together to solve riddles and math equations during their time-traveling adventures. Episodes transport listeners to moments in history like Pythagoras' ancient Greece, the era of the Aztecs, Sir Isaac Newton's England, and so much more. New episodes drop every Thursday, and I love how engaging, funny, and educational the episodes are. Your kids won't even realize they're learning about math and problem solving. My son even said he wanted to finish the episode on our drive home from school. So tune in to Mysteries About True Histories with your kids. You can follow and listen on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. everyone. Welcome to the Peds Doc Talk podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Mona, where each week I hope to educate and inspire you in your journey through parenthood with information on your most common concerns as a parent and interviews with fellow parents and experts in the field. My hope is you leave each week feeling more educated, confident, and empowered in the decisions you make for your child. Hello, welcome to this week's episode. I am so happy to have Jessica Gus. She is a pediatric dietitian out in California, and she's here today to talk about what she does as a pediatric dietitian, as well as ways that you can raise an intuitive eater. So I obviously what you do is important, and I wish we had access to more pediatric nutritionists, dietitians where I practice. You know, I I'm always trying to find find them in my area because I want families to have that help in terms of guiding their child in eating and guiding obviously how they approach eating um, with their children. What, um, how do most of your patients or clients find you? Is it through their pediatrician? Is it through a website? How do you uh, build your patient base? Yeah, when I first started out, um, I was taking just really local referrals. So local pediatricians and other um, healthcare facilities would refer people to me. Um, But over the years, I expanded and I now offer um, both in-person services in my office, but also virtual. Um, And so a lot of people are finding me online now, either through Instagram or other social channels, um, through Google, um, or even just through other healthcare providers. So there's other, um, you know, doctors and pediatricians and um, people from around the world that follow me even on social media that have recommended me to people. And um, so it's just been great um, being able to move that to more of a a virtual base as well, because I just feel like I can connect with so many more people. Um, And of course, the approach that you take online is a little bit different because you do have to be careful with state licensure laws and how you're, um, you know, providing certain information. Um, But the coaching aspect is, um, you know, really great. And I can still help people in a lot of different ways virtually, um, in addition to in person. So and what age group do you usually see? What's the youngest patient you have? And what's the oldest patient you have? Usually the younger patients that are referred to me are when they're starting solids. So I work a lot with um, moms who are just, you know, either starting their babies on solids or starting to think about it. Um, I do some presentations at some of our local, we have a, 
um, a local class called the baby hour at our, one of our hospitals. And I, I do a starting solids talk there, um, a couple times a year. Um, and so I do get some young ones that are around the six month age, of course. And then, um, I, I see up to 17, but I would say the majority of kids that I work with are between, um, zero and 10. Okay. And in terms of the overall issues that you see, most of the families that are coming to you, obviously, when they're introducing solids, do you find that they just don't know where to start? Or do you find that they are fearful of anything? Or what are the biggest hurdles you're seeing with parents and figuring out how to feed their children? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's there's actually a, a really wide range of things that I see, but most of the time they come because they they don't know where to start and they see so many things online and they're not sure what they should believe. Um, nowadays, with the increase in interest in baby-led weaning, I know a lot of people are wanting a little bit extra support because they're even more fearful of either the gagging or the choking and, and what to expect and what's normal. Um, but also just, you know, wanting to make sure they're feeding their kids the, the right things from the start. So um, a lot of what I do there is, you know, providing confidence and direction as far as the types of foods and, you know, the, the appropriate transition and textures and then, you know, just differences in feeding methods. Um, but yeah, it really depends in the baby, the baby um, age, what they're coming for. But most of the time, it's, it's kind of general um, uncertainty about what's the best way to go. Awesome. Yeah. I, you know, I'm, I wanted you to come on here and I'm so glad I connected with you through Instagram because, you know, we talk a lot about this intuitive eater and can you define what that means to you? Because I, I'm sure parents have heard that term. I actually have thrown out that term. I love it, but how would you define an, what an intuitive eater is? Well, for me and, and, in my practice and what I teach, um, you know, cause there's a lot of terms, there's intuitive eating, there's mindful eating, there's, um, responsiveness, um, and responsive feeding is something that I really encourage parents to follow. And I kind of mesh all these things together, but essentially my goals when I'm working with parents is to help them understand how they can, um, teach their kids to listen to their hunger and full cues and, um, be in the driver's seat when it comes to what they're eating. Um, so, you know, the parent's role is to provide the nutritious food. But it's up to the kids to decide if they're going to eat it, um, how much they're going to eat, when they're going to when they're going to eat it. Um, as far as like, you know, are they hungry right now? Or are they not? Um, and that's that's the child's role. Um, you know, the parents decide the time, but the kids decide if they're going to eat it or not. So um, for me, when it comes to that topic, it's more about helping parents feel confident in carrying that forward and making sure that they're providing opportunity um, for their kids to really listen to those um, hungerful kids with within them. And a lot of times I see that kids are getting that overridden because of external things going on, um, whether it's parental pressure or other outside pressure. Um, and, and it's a concept that's not um, well understood by a lot of parents. And that is why, you know, I wanted this episode to happen, because even as a general pediatrician, I, I am very passionate about the introduction of solids. And from the beginning, how important it is to look at this as a positive thing and how there are certain steps and strategies to kind of create a quote unquote good intuitive eater. And I think there's also just expectations that families have. You know, we as parents may expect our children to eat a certain amount, like you said, that we expect them to be a certain way when we're not really looking at the kid in front of us, right? So it's so important that we remember that as pediatricians, as dietitians, as parents, that every kid's unique. You have to work with you know, what your kid's giving you and also just the temperament of the child. And there's so many different things that come into parenting. And 
eating is almost in a way a parenting thing, right? It's how you approach it, your insecurities. Um, are you pushing it too much? Are you being too lax? And that's, you're right, very confusing to parents. So we're going to get started and talk about just a little bit, you know, what are some strategies that you would say in terms of laying that foundation for an intuitive eater? What would you say is like the first rule of intuitive eating? Well, well, first, I guess it depends on how old the child is. But, um, you know, if we're talking about kind of that starting solids and babies, um, it's really helping parents understand what responsive feeding looks like and how to read their child's hunger full cues. Um, I think we're pretty good at it when we're, you know, nursing or, or even bottle feeding. Um, but once solids start, you know, as parents, a lot of times, you know, we want them to take that one more spoonful or that one more bite. Um, when in reality, that might not be what they want in that moment. So just teaching parents kind of in that age group, how to read the signs and understand, um, you know, what baby might be telling you whether they're full or whether they want more. Um, and then as kids get a little bit older, um, it's really in encouraging parents to use the Saturn division of responsibility where they are providing the food, but then they're allowing their child to decide if they're going to eat it um, and then how much they're going to eat. So by not micromanaging them in the sense that, you know, they have to take a certain number of bites before they leave the table or they have to eat a bite of one thing before they can have more of something else. Um, all of those can kind of undermine the whole process of helping them become intuitive eaters. So um, I think from a, uh, the perspective of somebody just helping parents to, um, to understand that concept, it's more just about education and kind of having that conversation with them on where to start and practical things that they can, can do at home. So yeah, going to that sort of, you know, intro to solid phase, then do you recommend, you know, obviously families having some sort of schedule? Is routine important for um, you know, this establishing an intuitive eater, how does that play an effect into these boundaries and creating that good eating habits? Yeah, well, when, when babies are first starting out, there's not a whole lot of scheduling per se. Um, I usually encourage parents to work more towards a schedule starting around the one-year mark, but um, it is good to have, you know, specified kind of feeding times as well in the starting solids age. Um, but as you move into toddlerhood, that's when the schedule really does become important because um, it, especially for parents who have kids that, well, all kids would snack all day if they could. I'm convinced of that. But um, if that happens, then a lot of times they are just eating a little bit all day long and they aren't really able to listen to hungerful cues. They're almost just like overriding those through the snacking and then they don't eat as much at, at meals either. So um, the schedule does become important there because it helps kids to develop an appetite between mealtimes and then that really helps them to be able to try and eat more foods during the actual meals. Okay. And one of the biggest things I see is the use of screens. So, you know, obviously at mealtime and I have many families that feel, you know, say, well, the only way that child is going to eat is if they're distracted. What are your thoughts on screen use? I know everyone's trying to just get by, but what would be your recommendation or feeling about screens during mealtimes? So usually when I work with parents, I like to meet them where they're at, because if someone is using a screen at every single meal and I go in and say, get rid of all screens, um, the likelihood that they're going to be successful um, is very low. Um, however, in general, I'm not a huge fan of using screens at meals because screens become a distraction. So I would say the ultimate goal is to help parents work towards getting screens out of meals, at least on a regular basis. Um, but again, it's not generally like a, you know, a cold turkey situation. 
situation where I just go in and cut them out altogether. So um, one thing that I, because I, I find that anytime you're learning a concept, it's nice to have examples. But if you think about any time where you may have sat down on, on the couch with a bag of chips in your hand and, you know, you're watching TV or, you know, a show or a movie and you're just kind of eating and all of a sudden you look down and your bag of chips is totally gone and you don't even remember eating that whole entire bag of chips. So that's kind of a concept of mindless eating and that distraction is kind of what creates that situation. Um, children are born with the ability to understand their hunger and full cues until we kind of guide them to override that. And so using the screen is kind of an example of how that can start to happen. Because yes, as a parent, they might feel good their kids are eating a meal by watching a screen. Um, it's actually teaching them not to listen to their, their own hunger cues because it's being overridden by something else that's being distracting. Warmer, sunnier days are calling. Fuel up for them with Factors No Prep No Mess meals. Chef-crafted meals with options like Calorie Smart, Protein Plus, and Keto. Factors fresh, never-frozen meals are dietitian approved and ready to eat in just two minutes. With 35 different meals and more than 60 add-ons to choose from each week, you'll always have new flavors to explore. Crush your wellness goals this May with dietitian approved meals and ingredients you can trust. I absolutely love the spicy jalapeno, lime cheddar chicken, and mushroom chicken thighs with wild rice. Keep kitchen time to a minimum with Factor Meals because they're ready in two minutes, no shopping, prepping, cooking, or cleanup. I work from home and love the convenience and how delicious Factor Meals are. Head to factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 and use code peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box. That's code peedsdoctalk50 at factormeals.com slash peedsdoctalk50 to get 50% off your first box plus 20% off your next box while your subscription is active. As a pediatrician, mom, and podcaster, I want to share with you a podcast I recently discovered. It's called Understood Explains, and this season of the show is hosted by teacher and special education expert Juliana Ortube, and it's all about how to navigate individual education plans, also known as IEPs. The latest season of Understood Explains covers topics like how to tell if your child needs an IEP, and it busts common myths about special education. I listened to an episode called The Difference Between IEPs and 504 plans, and I learned so much that I honestly didn't know before. I now feel I can better explain these to my patients and their families and better support them in their neurodiversity journey. Navigating ADHD, dyslexia, and other learning and thinking differences can be confusing, and this podcast helps to validate these struggles and provide actionable tips that are useful for parents, teachers, and clinicians. To listen to Understood Explains, search for Understood Explains in your podcast app. That's Understood explains. So, I mean, ultimately the goal is to try and get the screens out, um, but it is a process sometimes. Yeah. I usually, you know, in my general pediatric practice, I, when I start, I talk about the introduction of solids as such an important phase, right? Like people forget that the, they're like, what about four months, six months? Why does it matter? I'm like, no, no, no. From the beginning, if yeah. you can avoid it, that then it would, it's like that child never even knew it existed, right? So that's why I love that you also emphasize that first five years and obviously going downstream because mm -hmm. that's kind of where we have to set up those habits. Um, because yeah, I, I see a lot of successful eating relationship with 
you know, without screens and it can be done. It just has to be sort of that sort of, okay, let's try it. If we've already introduced it, let's find ways to maybe reduce it at some meals. And like you said, kind of not cold turkey because it could be chaos, but kind of get that, get that removed. Um, And yeah, what are, you said it, you you said um, signs of hunger and fullness cues. What would be, what would those look like? to a family at maybe we can go, you know, you can go by little different age groups, but maybe starting young and going a little older. Sure. So for babies, some, some very typical signs are if they turn their head. So if you're doing spoon feeding, for example, and they turn their head away from the spoon or kind of swap the spoon out of the way or um, don't open their mouth when you bring the spoon to them. So ideally if you're doing spoon feeding and you know, you're, you're letting your baby lean towards the spoon and you're watching their mouth open, and that's a sign that they want to take more. Um, but if you're kind of trying to force the spoon in their mouth or, or press it on their lips to get them to open their mouth, um, that may be overriding those signs a little bit. Um, as you move a little bit older into maybe toddlerhood, um, they're pretty good at letting you know when they're done most of the time. But if you start noticing getting really fidgety um, or or playing with or throwing food, um, a lot of times those are signs the the meal is done as well. And if you have those that schedule in place that we talked about earlier, um, that's the better chance that your child's going to come hungry. Um, because a lot of parents will tell me, "Well, I sit I sit them down at the table and they start doing that stuff immediately." So then my question is, okay, well, when was the last time they ate? And often they had recently had a snack. So um, in order to listen to those hungerful cues and and, and let them do that, they have to have the ability and the opportunity to, to do so. So you can look for some of those signs in toddlers. And then, you know, as kids get older, they can tell you I'm hungry or I'm not hungry. And it's something that you can have a conversation with them about and get them thinking about. And what other things would you add in terms of, you know, ways that we can create an intuitive eater? I know we talked about, you know, schedules are great, listening to the body, the fullness and um, hunger cues, but what else could you add in terms of that sort of foundation? Um, Well, I I think, um, you know, part of raising an intuitive eater is a combination of all of the things um, and also just kind of opening the conversation and getting your kids involved as well. Um, Because I think a lot of times, um, you know, when especially when kids are starting to enter that the dreaded picky eating phase that happens in toddlerhood. Um, that's when parents struggle most with the concept of intuitive eating because they almost want their child to eat so badly that they'll do anything to get them to take a bite. And a lot of times that turns into kind of coaxing or bribing. Um, sometimes we see things like food rewards. Um, you know, if you eat this, then you can have this. Um, and it's usually something like a sweet or an ice cream or something like that. So um, when you do something like a food reward or you bribe them with something, um, that's kind of a, a backwards way of overriding their hunger cues because um, they're learning that in order to get this food they want, they have to eat something that they're maybe not really hungry for. So um, that's why I'm a big concept of, um, you know, parents doing dessert with meal versus dessert after the meal. Um, because basically, if you, when you have it after the meal, what you're telling them is, you know, eat till you're full, and then you can have this extra thing that you really wanted. Um, so, so that would be something that I, I would probably add to that is just, you know, trying to, um, avoid doing food rewards and, and bribing related to sweets and treats. Yeah. That lab- that sort of labeling is, well, you have to eat your green beans to get something good, re- kind of labels it as green beans are 
bad. I mean, obviously we're not saying that, but for kids, it's like, oh, I have to just get through this to get to something I actually want, which means that that's just a hassle to do. Like it's, it's not labeling these foods as just something nutritious and that we have to just do. It's kind of putting it in like a good and bad category is what I, I kind of see. Do you, would you agree? Absolutely. Yes. And they, I think in their mind, they think, well, if I have to do this to get to that, then that food must really be good. And then it gets kind of held up on a pedestal. And then you start to see some sweet obsessed kids coming out too, because they're like, Ooh, you know, that food was the good food. So I'm going to want to, you know, that's the food I want to fixate on. Um, so, so I'm a big fan of kind of leveling the playing field when it comes to foods and, and trying to avoid language that would indicate one food is healthier than another, um, even though I know that's really hard for parents. Um, but I find that when parents start to, you know, initially, it's it's not always going to happen that way. But once they, they start to be consistent with this concept, um, you'd be surprised. You know, your kids aren't always necessarily going to just gobble down that dessert, which they might have initially, um, because they recognize that it's not something that's restricted to them. Um, and so that's, you know, something that's really desirable. Yeah. I, you know, I see a lot of this sort of, yeah. Um, this sort of, I'm going to give you this and we're going to, or you're going to get this dessert if you eat this vegetable. And I, I see that parents sometimes don't understand that there's a behavioral component, obviously around eating. I, I know me and you are talking and obviously we both know, but that sort of relationship with food, it's a positive relationship that I have seen to the point where kids have been forced to eat to the point where they don't want to eat anymore. And I, I see this commonly where I'm like, wow, like they're just so stressed from the experience, right? Because someone's hounding them, you need to eat one bite, whatever it may be. And that kid just loses that desire to want to enjoy a meal. And that's why I'm so passionate about this because food is nutritious. Food should not be looked at a bad or good or reward, it should be looked at this is something that sustains us. And this is something that is good for us and not a task. And I'm afraid that a lot of parents I'm seeing are looking at eating as a task, right? Because time is limited, and you just want your children to eat. What would you say to that family who, you know, obviously, there's a situation, a toddler who won't eat anything in a meal, right? They've, they've tried, they give just say example, they give green beans and like shredded chicken, and they don't eat that meal. Do you feel it's a good thing for you for the family to go to the kitchen and maybe get something else? Or how would you navigate that sort of refusal in one meal setting with a toddler? I know it can be varying child to child situation by situation. But what would be your like advice in that situation? So when, when parents, so a couple of things with that. So one, um, I totally, so I actually have a toddler and I totally understand the stress that comes with the whining and the pulling and the, I don't want that. And, you know, everything that comes with that, I, I fully and 100% understand it's so hard. So I have to remind myself that I know what it's like when you're in those situations. And sometimes you just want to be like, okay, just have it. Um, but the, the reality is that when you start to lean towards that consistent making a sec second meal, um, the first thing that happens is as a parent, you get totally exhausted because not only are you making one meal, but then you're making a whole nother meal. And then the stress level goes up even more and your kids can read off your stress levels. But the other thing that happens is um, when you make that second meal, they're not really um, learning to ever like anything new because you're always kind of reverting back to those same foods over and over. So what it's doing is it's increasing the amount that they like those foods and not really helping them like anything new. 
So one way that parents can kind of get around that is by making the meal that they're planning to make, but then try to think of at least one, but ideally two um, foods that you can include at that meal that might be comfort related foods or more familiar foods. So you mentioned green beans and chicken earlier, and maybe those two foods are kind of new or less familiar to the child, but maybe the child has a fruit that they, the parent knows they like, or maybe Maybe they like milk or soy milk or pea milk, um, or maybe it's bread or garlic toast. Um, they can think about other components that they could add to the meal, so add to the chicken and green beans, so that the child would come to the table, see that there's something they like there, and not throw that fit for something different. Um, instead of having to make a whole nother meal, um, the parents just maybe adding to the meal they're already making. So that makes it less stressful for the parent. And it also helps the child come to the table with a higher level of comfort, which means they're more likely to even try that thing that they maybe didn't want to try initially. Yeah. And I, you know, that stress level is exactly it because that obviously we're exhausted and you just want your child to eat. And that stress obviously can absolutely go down to that child. And I've seen that, right? Because they're just, the kid is stressed because the kid's like, I don't know what I'm supposed to do with this. You're supposed to show me what I'm supposed to do with this. And I I spoke about this in another episode of my podcast um, about 15 things we need to stop doing as parents. And I talk about this sort of intuitive eating and how we are afraid of our kids because we're afraid to, in a way, we're afraid to see them upset because we feel like we're not being good parents if they cry, if they're, you know, if you don't, cave in and give them the cookie or if you don't cave in and give them what they want that we're depriving them of love when it's not that right it's just boundary setting and kind of understanding that they're not going to love everything we do and it's okay in accepting that it's okay in understanding that we're doing the best thing for our kid and that we are providing them nutrition and you know the I love that rule that you said about the the scheduling I I do like that rule I think that the children from a pediatric standpoint we know really thrive on routine and schedule. It creates a sense of security. Right now we're recording this episode during the COVID-19 outbreak and adults need it too, right? We need routine and expectation when things are chaotic. And in a toddler's mind, everything's chaotic. Like, so having that routine and saying, okay, three meals a day, two snacks, this is when you're going to be getting food. This is when your naps are coming. It can create that sort of expectation where we may start to see, I, I've seen it in my practice, less of that, you know, descent of, oh my gosh, I, I don't want to do it because they're like, oh, well, I'm hungry now. Yeah, I'll, I'll try this. And am I right that you need to expose the child to one food multiple times before they may even take one little bite of it, right? Yeah. And the research is kind of all over the place. Like some say eight times, some say 15. Honestly, for some, it's like 20 plus exposures. And um, the other thing with exposures, I think parents get really fixated on the fact that they're like, oh, I have to make this food that many times. Well, it's not like, you know, it has to be like, you know, over and over in, in a row and in, in a consecutive amount of days. It's just recognizing that if you make something and your kid says, I don't like that, or they they won't eat it in a meal. That doesn't mean no forever. It just means no for now. And it's okay. It's okay if they don't want to eat something right now. Um, but it's not okay to never make it again, because they're never going to like it again, if 
you don't keep trying. So, um, and then exposure can be more than just making it too. It can be interacting with it in different ways. I'm a big fan of food play. So something I do in my practice um, and with my clients and also in my, my online membership for parents is we incorporate food play as much as we can. Um, and it can be as simple as getting them in the kitchen and helping or playing with the stalks of you know, asparagus that you've cut off, um, making funny faces on food with other food. Um, there's so many different types of food play that you can do with kids to get them interacting and exposed to it without the pressure of actually eating. So there's a lot of things like that that you can do that can actually help with picky eating in a way that doesn't feel scary to them, especially in like the toddler preschool age. This podcast is sponsored by Active Skin Repair, a skin health company helping people heal with non-toxic medical-grade ingredients. Active Skin Repair can be used to treat a wide range of skin issues, including cuts, scrapes, burns, sunburns, rashes, diaper rashes, and other types of skin damage. I discovered Active Skin Repair and their baby spray from my community when our daughter was a newborn and had constant diaper rashes, and it really helped and continues to help. Containing hypochlorous acid, which is an effective option for helping with yeast diaper rash, we just spray or dab active skin repair onto the skin with a clean cloth or cotton ball. Let's sit for 15 seconds and then apply our balm or ointment of choice. With over 500,000 happy customers and thousands of five-star reviews, you now have one simple solution for all of your family's skin health needs. Visit www.activeskinrepair.com to learn more about active skin repair and to get 20% off your order using code PEDSDOC. That's P-E-D-S-D-O-C. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better. And that's why, you know, baby led weaning is so popular, right? Because you're allowing that child to play or, you know, touch the food, smell it, get really messy. And you are, you know, we talked about parents are, you know, in a way afraid of their kids being upset. They're also afraid of mess. And I hear that all the time, right? It's like, well, I, I can't, I don't have time to clean. I, you know, speaking personally, I used to be a neat freak. I had order in my apartment. I, things need to be put away. Once we had our son, who's now three months, I've had to drop a lot of that and things are a mess. And sometimes I don't clean, right? And it's it's that sort of dropping that sort of expectation that the mess is good for kids in eating. It's all, it's good for them in play, right? Like even if it's just with paint or anything else, but with food, it's just really good for them to feel it because they're not as scared of it, right? Like they 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 look at it and they're like, oh well, I get to touch it, I get to smell it, and I see the kids who do baby led weaning or even something similar to that. You know, if you're if parents aren't comfortable, the fact when they're allowed to play with their food in a good way. It's really, really good for them. I, I, I completely agree with that. 
Yeah. And it just, it, it brings alive all their senses. So you were saying, you know, touch and smell, but also, you know, seeing and interacting with, and, you know, when babies and young kids get food on their hands and on their face, um, they're less likely to have some of those other issues with, um, you know, sensory picky eating type stuff later because they're exposed to it in a way that um, is more positive. They're not being told. So So when you start to see issues, especially in the, the parents that are constantly wiping their baby's face or they'll take one bite and then they'll wipe their hand with a wipe um, and, you know, they immediately take the mess away versus letting them just kind of, you know, sit in it until they're done. And then, you know, at the very end, dealing with that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, the messier, the better from the perspective of helping them learn to like food, not always from the cleaning up part, but. Yeah. And, um, you know, as a general pediatrician, my, my niche is infant toddler development. You know, I know me and you had talked about how the first five years are so important. And I really like to remind families that, eating is in a way a milestone, right? It is like you're obviously four months happen, six months happen, we're eating, yay. And you're looking at the cues to be able to eat. Since we have a moment, I wanted to ask you, what would be the cues that they're ready to start solid foods? Or, you know, obviously if you're doing purees at four or six months, what would be those signs of readiness um, going into that intuitive eater? Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so um, the AAP and several other organizations, you know, they recommend starting solids around six months when babies show signs. So it could be a bit before, it could be a bit after. Um, and some of those signs include, you know, the absence of the tongue thrust. So when babies no longer using their tongue to, you know, push the food out of their mouth and, and they're able to move a little bit more laterally, um, being able to sit mostly independently. They don't need to be able to sit all the way up by themselves, but they shouldn't flop over. Um, they need to be able to have good positioning in the chair. Um, they should be showing signs by bringing objects to their mouth, uh, like being able to pick it up with their hands and bring it to their mouth. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of times parents are like, oh, well, my baby's ready because he's tracking with his eyes at meals. He looks like he's interested in food. Um, that is also a sign, but you need to have most of the signs together and I think the most important one is this, the being able to sit almost independently because that's usually the one that comes last. So you know, just because your baby is, you know, seeming like they're interested when you are eating your food, that alone is not a sign that they are ready. You need to have a collection of signs. So again, it's usually around the six month mark, um, different for every baby. And especially if a baby's born prematurely, that might be pushed back a little bit. Um, Four months generally is on the early side, but for some babies, especially ones that are, you know, pretty high allergy risk, a lot of times they will recommend earlier introduction because of the protective benefits, as you know. So um, that's why that four to six range is kind of there. But most babies are already a little bit closer to the six month mark. And yeah, we used, you know, you referenced the AAP. I, I know this is not an intro to solids talk, but obviously it's all related to this eating. But yeah, we normally... At, at our visits, we actually usually talk about it at the four months. And there, you know, I'm surprised that there's actually a lot of uproar about that because I, I've heard, you know, some families like, how could you introduce so early? Some babies are ready as early as four months. Like I said, it's a milestone, right? So mm -hmm. the reason why general pediatricians talk about it at the four month visit is that we're encompassing any baby. If right. all the, you're right, those, you said those signs beautifully because that's obviously from the AP and that's what we say too. But yeah. if they're showing all those signs, they could show that. I have seen in my office, babies at four months mm -hmm. have all those signs. Babies at five months, babies at six months. 
it's not anything bad or good if someone's doing it earlier than later, but it is a milestone that we have to accept that, hey, if they're showing it, you're right, that it is ready. We can start doing it. If they're showing that interest, I want them to explore the food. And you said you brought up the allergy component, right? That, yeah, AAP is now recommending, and this has been for a while, that early introduction is actually good for the immune system that lives in our gut to prevent allergies. So it's that whole combination that if the child's ready and showing those signs, I want the family to feel motivated and ready to go. Um, obviously talking to their pediatrician about, you know, if they have allergy risks or anything like that, um, if they're breastfeeding versus formula, like how, you know, how they can kind of finagle that. And maybe we can record another episode about that. But it's so important that when they are ready, that they're ex- the parents are excited about it. Like, right. I think there shouldn't be a fear. There should be a, yes, I love my baby and I know they're growing up, but this is an awesome thing. This is a milestone. Let's, let's enjoy this. And from the moment they start introducing food, it should be, I'm excited to do this. I'm patient with my kid. I'm persistent with the introduction of food. And I'm, I'm also smiling when I'm giving you the food. I, you know, families have actually in my office showed how they feed their kid because they're so nervous. Like my kid's not eating. I'm like, why don't we look? I'm not a nutrition, but I'm like, why don't we see? And so they bring out their food, you know, whatever it is, like a bottle of, of food, and then they'll give the food and the parents are like tense. They're like, they're, they're so tense about it. And I'm like, take a breath, relax, because you have to enjoy it too. Your face and what they're seeing is really important. And having had Ryan, I see that a hundred percent. My mood is Ryan's mood in many ways. And it, it's in many situations already with feeding and behavior that there is a nurture component that is absolutely there, especially with feeding. And, and I, that, I continues, yeah, I agree. that continues even past babyhood too, into toddlerhood yeah. and older kids, you know, kids can totally read when they're, when their parents are stressed out. I know mine can. <laughs> oh yeah. Like right now, I mean, with, with bottle feeding, right? Like, and I have, you know, families when they come in for bottle feeding that, or breastfeeding that they they won't la you know, they won't, take the feeding. I'm like, did you relax yourself when you started to feed? And you're right when you said this earlier that it has, the concepts are very similar to breast milk and formula. This sort of, we know their signs that they're full. We know that they're hungry, but yet when we start solids, we forget those cues. And I, I'm kind of surprised by that, right? Because it's the babies, the babies are smart. They know what they need to do, but we create the sort of, oh my gosh, I, I need them to eat more, or maybe they're not. And I love that we talked about this because I want them to kind of understand that concept that even from that breast milk and formula stage, they were doing what they need to do. And they absolutely can do it in infancy with food, with toddlerhood, with food. But we have to kind of say, okay, I'm going to do what I can do, but let my kid kind of run the show in some ways with the amount they eat and their hunger cues and their fullness cues. So I, I love, love, love that we had this conversation. Is there anything else that you would want to add that, you know, your, you know, your tips or what you could tell any parent when they're starting food or, you know, if you could just put, put it on a billboard <laughs> in terms of creating a, a, a well-rounded eater, what would be your kind of final statements? I just like to encourage parents to have fun with it. I know that we don't always associate feeding and food with fun because 
in our minds, it's something that we have to do and it becomes so stressful, Um, but it doesn't have to be that way. And I think when you do remember that it is fun, it is a bonding experience with your child. You're bonding with your baby, you're bonding with your toddler, you're bonding with your older kids and use it as a way to connect and kind of come together. And just remember that food and feeding is love. And so when you can approach it from that perspective, I think it helps change your mindset about how you're how you're doing it and 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 what you're feeling because um you know it's so it's so important for kids to just have that togetherness with their parents whether it's just one parent whether it's multiple parents whether it's a whole family no matter how big your family is just that connection that you make at at meals from the very start and going on is just so huge and it can impact so many other areas of the kids lives even if they even as they get older oh yeah i I love the way you speak about this. I have, you know, through Instagram, I've been able to meet so many specialists in the area of pediatrics. And it's always such a pleasure talking, talking to you guys, because I learn things, but also hearing how passionate people are about their specialties, right? Like earlier this week, I spoke to a pediatric adolescent medicine doctor, and you obviously are so passionate about it. And so am I, I love nutrition. I wish I knew more about you know, what kinds of foods and, you know, what are the best nutritious foods? And, you know, we as pediatricians don't get that training in terms of, you know, what, what exactly should we be putting in this meal? We say, okay, we'll do a variety. And I'm just so grateful that the world has amazing pediatric nutritionists like you and on social media doing what you're doing. So thank you, because I, eating is one of those big areas that I know families really struggle with. So I can't express my gratitude from my, my patients and my Instagram followers and anyone who's ever struggled with their child and eating. Cause it's, it's a hard, it's a hard time for a lot of families. Thank you. Yeah, I know everyone brings such uniqueness to the table. And I think it's important. And that's why having different, you know, disciplines and area of expertise is, is so critical to people because everyone brings, you know, something different and, and can really help in different ways. So it's it's been great connecting. Yes. And everyone, her Instagram, I'm going to attach it to my uh, show notes. Again, it's elementnutrition.kids. And her infographics and just her visuals are so amazing in terms of these rules that we talked about, these sort of boundary setting, but also just anything in regards to nutrition for your children. So definitely, definitely check out her Instagram account. And I know we're probably going to be talking again because I love everything that you say in terms of the passion you have and the message that you're trying to give families. So thank you so much, Jessica. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. And I will just add one more thing too. Um, If you are struggling with a picky eater or starting solids with your baby, um, I have two really great free resources that um, your listeners can download. And I'll send the link to you if you'd like it. Um, They can also find it on my Instagram profile, of course, but um, it might be, you know, just a way to, you know, take what I, what I kind of talked about with you today a little bit further and just, you know, really get a little bit extra of what they're needing on those two topics. Absolutely. I can put that link in the show notes on my website too. That is awesome because I want to give any resource we can to our families, especially, you know, I'm going to be uploading this episode during the COVID-19 outbreak. I really want our families to continue doing what we need to do with our kids, raising them, feeding them, creating good eaters, creating mindful children, because the, the times are tough right now. And I love that you off, you're offering that because I want to offer that too. So thank you again. Thank you. It's been so great talking to you. 
Thank you for tuning in for this week's episode. I hope you guys enjoyed it. As always, please leave a review, share it with a friend, comment on my social media. And if you're not already, follow me at PedsDocTalk on Instagram. Love doing this for all of you. Have a great rest of your week. Take care. Talk to you soon. Hello, you sentient ball of stardust. My name is Casey Davis. I'm a therapist and I'm an author of the book, How to Keep House While Drowning, where I talk about ways to make it a little bit easier to take care of yourself when you're overwhelmed, stressed, have mental health issues, physical health issues, or maybe you're just in a hard season of life. Maybe you're looking for a place that you can come and listen to some practical advice. This is a podcast for all of the self-help rejects. We're going to talk about skills for survival and self-kindness. And I'm going to leave the pop psychology at the door. I promise not to tell you to meditate or to journal. We're just going to give you some really insightful conversations with hopefully some practical advice. So I don't believe you need to pick yourself up by the bootstraps. I don't want you to just try harder. And I don't believe that laziness exists. So join me over on Struggle Care, where we can find compassionate solutions that help us function a little bit better.